Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 22. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber, that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away. This wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon, because he had violated his sister Tamar. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles McKnight, pastoral assistant here at Christ Central Church. Uh, As most of the members here know, uh, Pastor Brown is on sabbatical for the next few weeks. And so he's given the opportunity for other folks to come up here. 
Um, and so I'm thankful, as always, to have the opportunity to bring you God's Word this morning. Violence, hurt, harm, abuse, damage, violence, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, verbal, sexual, violence, roadside bombings, human trafficking, racial slurs, middle school bullying, parental neglect, domestic disputes, sexual assault, violence. Devastation, exploitation, manipulation, humiliation, violence. Violence is everywhere. Millions of people in this world, in this country, are victims or culprits of some type of violating act or behavior every year. Violence is everywhere. You'd be hard-pressed to go a day in this world and not hear about or witness or even experience yourself some type of violating act. Violence is everywhere. In our communities, in our schools, and even in some of our homes. Violence is everywhere. The reality is that we all, everyone in this theater this morning, at some point in our life, have been or will be the victim and culprit of some type of violating behavior. And that's exactly what violence does. It, it violates, it robs, it steals, it takes the dignity and respect of its victims and its culprits. And it replaces it with hurt and shame, devastation, guilt, and disgrace. Violence is a world epidemic, but it's not a new problem. You see, violence may be the longest standing epidemic in the history of the world. Scripture teaches us that when our first parents, Adam and Eve, tripped and fell into sin in Eden, that an all-inclusive misery was to be the reality for all people who would come after them. And in the fall, the unity and peace of creation was holistically vandalized, and violence made a grand entrance into the human narrative. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, kills his brother Abel. And this sets the trend of scores of violent actions between people throughout the Old Testament. Page after page in Scripture, we find horrible examples of disgraceful and violating acts and effects of sin on humanity. Understand, violence is nothing new. Even our great heroes of the Old Testament were not immune from the disease of sin that leads to terrible violence. King David, Israel's greatest king, someone who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, used his power to sleep with a subordinate's wife and then has the guy murdered. And our text this morning, 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 22 
reveals to us that the apple doesn't roll too far from the tree. For our passage details a repulsive, violent episode of King David's son Amnon raping his very own sister, Tamar. This is a passage that in living color paints a picture of sin and its consequences, of of assault and its effects, of violence and the disgrace it brings. And that's where we'll begin our journey through this text. We'll, We'll begin by looking at the details of the disgrace, the disgrace of Amnon's actions towards his sister Amnon. We'll then look at how there was no place No place for Tamar to take her disgrace. And finally, we'll talk about the place, the place for our disgrace. Disgrace, no place for disgrace, and the place for disgrace. Look back with me at verses 1 and 2. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because his sister Tamar, of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. This account begins by telling us that David's son, King David's son, Amnon is twisted with sick and sexual lust for Tamar. His sister. Now, to be specific, Scripture teaches elsewhere that this is his half-sister. Same daddy, different mamas. But even as half-siblings, they probably still favor each other. They possibly both have daddy's nose or, or his eyes. They definitely grew up with each other, and they also definitely have the same blood, the king's blood, flowing through their veins. But according to verses 1 through 2, every time Amnon looks at his sister, his blood sister Tamar, he's engulfed with the flame of incestuous, unfulfilled lust. Amnon wants nothing more but to have sex with his sister, and he will do whatever it takes to make that happen. Now, the text tells us Tamar is a virgin. And understand the protection that was placed around virgin girls in this cultural context, especially the king's virgin daughter, combined with the whole brother and sister thing, which Israel's law clearly forbade, made it nearly impossible for Amnon to have the opportunity to act on his desires. But he's determined to do whatever it takes to get her. You ever wanted something? That you shouldn't have? You ever desired something that you know is sinful or unhealthy or unwise? Of course you have. We all have. We all do. We all experience evil temptations every day. Maybe not exactly like Amnon's, but all of us find ourselves, find our flesh burning with the fire of desire for the forbidden fruit whatever that may be for you. We all, like Amnon, find ourselves craving that which we shouldn't have. And understand, Amnon is probably not used to not getting what he wants. He's the king's son. 
According to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2, he's David's firstborn son, a birth position that came with the highest benefits in this cultural context. Amnon is probably the richest, most privileged kid in the kingdom. This brother was born with a silver and a gold spoon in his mouth. And I imagine since birth, he's been surrounded by yes men, servants who exist to get Amnon whatever he wants. And so the word no is probably not a word Amnon is too familiar with. And no is not an acceptable response to what he wants now, which is his sister, Tamar. And so he racks his brain for days. Verse 2 says he, he was tormented, trying to figure out how to satisfy his burning, lustful desire. So what does he do? Who does he get counsel from? Look at verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard this morning after Morgan? Why will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother. I love Tamar, my brother, Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So basically in walks Amnon and Tamar's slick talking first cousin, Jonadab. We'll call him Cousin Joe. And immediately slick talking Cousin Joe starts popping off at the mouth, asking him, hey dude, what you walking around moping for? Then Amnon tells him, look man, I'm burning for Tamar. I've got to have her. Now I imagine Cousin Joe sucking his teeth when he hears this like, man, that's it? Come on, man, you're the king's son. You can have and should have whatever you want. And so then Cousin Joe goes on to school Amnon on how to put on a dramatic scene of manipulation that will get Amnon alone with his sister, Tamar. So in verse 5, he tells Amnon, this is what you do. Play sick, and when your daddy comes to check on you, Ask him if you can have Tamar bring you some of that bread she makes and have her make it here where you are and act like you're so sick that that you need her to feed it to you. And then once she comes in, you know, do exactly what you desire. This is slick cousin Joe's counsel. This is the advice that Amnon receives. Now, before we continue I think we need to pause for a second to discuss advice. Y'all ever got bad advice before? I have. Y'all ever given bad advice before? Guilty as charged. Amen? And it's one thing when we or someone else gives us a bad recommendation on a restaurant or a hotel or a vacation idea. But it's a whole nother ball game 
When you open up to someone about a sinful struggle or desire, and instead of challenging and encouraging you not to act on it, they end up enabling you in it. Look, we all know it's not hard to find someone who is willing to give you an opinion on how to deal with your problems, right? Everybody's got an opinion. I got an opinion. There are people and books and articles and blogs that are quick to offer you the solution to your problem. But as believers, we can't be ignorant to the fact that as surprising as it may seem, most people don't have your holiness as their top priority in their counsel. Most people could care less about your sanctification. Most could care less about offering godly, gospel-centered advice. And guess what? Even if they do care about all those things, they can still be wrong sometimes. Brothers and sisters, we should learn from Amnon's mistake and be both wiser about how we allow our, who we allow ourselves to receive counsel from and wiser about how we judge their counsel. Hear me. Just because someone loves you, just because someone is related to you, I'm going to keep it real, just because someone goes to church with you doesn't mean that every piece of advice they offer is right. We have to remember that Scripture, God's Word alone, is the ultimate rule and authority for how we are to navigate life. Not the latest book, not the recommendation from your mama or your friends or your therapist, not ultimately from even your elders and pastors. Understand that their counsel is is cyanide. It's poison to you if it contradicts what God has revealed in Scripture. We have to cultivate, brothers and sisters, a discipline, a lifestyle that begins with God's word and allows it to have the final word. Now, someone should have reminded Amnon about this, about taking advice from slick cousin Joe. But apparently no one did. And so Amnon took his cousin's wicked advice and ran with it. Verse 6, so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Here Amnon executes cousin Joe's disgusting scheme to a T. He calls up daddy, and in no time, Tamar is in his place whipping him up some food. Now, I imagine 
that she was taken by surprise when her father, the king, asked her to come and wait on her wild brother. But I'm sure she didn't dare think to disobey him, her father, the king. So now Tamar finds herself in her brother's house, I imagine becoming more and more creeped out with every glance she makes at at Amnon's lustful stare. I imagine deep down she could feel that something was just not right. It probably seemed even more off when Amnon refused to eat what she baked in verse 9. And then out of nowhere, our text tells us Amnon kicks everyone out and asks Tamar in verse 10 to bring the food into my chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And so she entered his room. She walked into his chamber. She then apprehensively, I'm sure, reaches out to hand Amnon the bread. All the while, her mind probably racing, wondering what in the world is going on, wondering what in the world her crazy brother might be up to. And then, like a flash of horror, Tamar's worst fears are realized. Verses 11 through 14. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. In a blurred instant, Amnon grabs Tamar and demands she have sex with him. She struggles to free herself from his grasp, begging him, pleading with him not to rape her. She tries to stay calm. She tries to persuade him through rational argument. She reminded him that God's people didn't act like this. She tried to convince him that doing this, having sex, raping his sister, would only bring disgrace. She even asked him the rhetorical question in verse 13. Where could I get rid of my shame, of my disgrace? If you, brother, were to do something like this to me, your sister... And as a last resort, she even told him to just ask daddy, ask the king if you could marry me. But there was no hope. Amnon was at the point of no return. He grabs his sister. She tries to wrestle away, but he's too strong. He overpowers her. And Amnon, King David's son, rapes his sister, Tamar. It then tells us in verses 15 through 17 that Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for the, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. 
But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door behind her. Amnon disgraced himself and his sister. He allowed his sick emotions to control him and lead him to act with horrid sexual violence towards his sister. He thought he really loved her. But after he took what he got from her, after he took her purity and her dignity, he had no more use for her. And the text says he hated her. The intensity in which Amnon once desired Tamar is now only matched by the intensity in which he now hates her. I imagine Tamar at this point, trembling, curled in a ball on the the cold, dusty floor, shell-shocked, struggling to process the terror she's just experienced. And just as she's beginning to step back into a level of coherence, a situation that couldn't have possibly gotten worse does. For Amnon, brewing with devilish hatred, screams at Tamar at the end of verse 15, Get up and go. What? I'm sure Tamar is almost paralyzed with compounded shock. What is he talking about? How could he possibly be angry with me? I'm the abused. I'm the assaulted. I'm the violated one. In verse 16, she even yells, no. What you've done is already bad enough. What could possibly make you want to pile even more shame, more dishonor, more disgrace by kicking me out? But Amnon wanted her gone, out of his sight. Sin had caused him to see and treat Tamar, his sister, as subhuman, as nothing more than a tool for his pleasure, as a disposable object that he no longer needs. To Amnon, Tamar is trash. Trash that he wants taken out. So he called in one of his boys in verse 17 to drag her out. And so Tamar is now left abandoned, terrified, helpless, humiliated, and confused. She is left alone, just her and her disgrace. As you hear this devastating story, I'm sure some of you are remembering your own hurts, your own past abuses and mistreatment. Rethinking of times in the past when a stranger or a peer or people in power, maybe even people who were supposed to be protecting you, used you, took from you, robbed you of the dignity and respect you deserve, and left you with only disgrace. Maybe it was an ex-boyfriend or that boss. Or those kids in the locker room. That teacher or or coach. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was even a spiritual leader. Maybe it was a relative. Maybe it was that family friend. Maybe it was even mama. Maybe it was daddy. 
Isn't it crazy how sometimes the people closest to us hurt us the most? And isn't it crazy how sometimes we hurt those who are closest to us? See, on the flip side, we also know, if we're honest, that we have used our own power, our own influence, our own smooth talking to manipulate, to get what we wanted at the expense of another. We haven't always dealt with people with the purest of motives. We all have at times allowed selfishness and self-centeredness to cause us to overlook, to neglect, and to use. So you see, we all have experienced life to some degree on both sides of the coin of disgrace, violated and violators. And most of you know what it's like for it to seem as if you have no place for your disgrace, no place for your shame and guilt, no place to carry the broken pieces of our sin-stained lives. And Tamar, too, was left with no place for her disgrace. She, too, was left with ragged pieces of displaced disgrace. Verse 18, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Her robe, the one that had once been a symbol of her high social status and purity, she tears in verse 18. On her head, where she usually placed a headdress to symbolize dignity, she now places ashes in verse 19. She throws her hands on her head in terror and grief and staggers away aimlessly, probably half blinded by the tears running down her face and her outward appearance and actions are just manifestations or revelations of her inner grief, of her feelings of utter disgrace. Who in the world could she flee to with this disgrace? Verse 20, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And then verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. So you got Tamar, drunk with misery, wandering around aimlessly until her brother Absalom finds her in verse 20. And he immediately knows what happened. Now, surely her brother would take the disgrace and bring redemption to this situation, right? Surely he would move swiftly to confront Amnon, right? No. Absalom basically tells Tamar to keep what happened on the low. 
Yes, the text tells us that Absalom hated his brother for what he did to Tamar. And we later learn in the rest of 2 Samuel that Absalom's anger festers and eventually drives him to murder his brother Amnon. But at this point, he simply silences the victim. He should have given her a voice. He should have empowered her to seek justice. He should have sought justice on her behalf right then. But he didn't. He silenced her. And so Tamar went to Absalom's house, as verse 20 says, desolate, empty, left to drown in her disgrace. In verse 21, we learn that the details of this ordeal finally gets back to Tamar's father, David. Verse 21 says, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Great, right? Now the king knows. Now daddy knows. Surely David, as king, as her father, would bring justice and healing to this situation. And the text does say, right, that David gets angry. It even says he gets very angry when he hears the news. But what else does it say? What else does it say he said? What else does it say that he did? The text says nothing more. King David gets angry and does nothing. This was his opportunity to fight the fire of sin that was destroying his house, to fight the flame of iniquity that he sparked with his own evil action. But he passes on the opportunity. David doesn't run to Tamar to console her. He doesn't seek justice on her behalf. He simply gets mad and does nothing. Nothing. What a failure of a king. What a sorry father. What both her brother and father's actions, or lack thereof, say to Tamar is that she is not worth it. She is not worth risking their public image. She is not worth disappointing a sin-sick son. She is not worth seeking justice for. And so Absalom and David, by doing nothing, pile more disgrace more metaphorical ashes on Tamar's head. So again, Tamar is left, left with even more displaced disgrace. Who now could ever rescue her from such disgrace? What have you done with your disgrace? What have you done with your pain? What have you done with the wounds from mistreatment? Are they festering deep inside, just sitting there, growing, making you angrier and angrier? Maybe you've buried them. What have you buried them under? For some, it might be academic achievement or in your career. Maybe beneath a new relationship or behind the busyness of raising children. Maybe it's in food or prescriptions or, or alcohol. Maybe it's under some self-help program. How have you played off your hurt? How have you self-medicated your pain? On the flip side, what have you done with the guilt from the wrongs you've done? The disgrace you've caused for the sins you've committed, for the ways you've hurt others? From the ways you've hurt yourself. 
Have you tried to pile up the good works and tried to be good, hoping that that would make up for the evil that you've done? Or maybe you've just tried to forget it, to block it out, to pretend that it never happened. What have you done with your shame and guilt? Hear me. We need a place not to hide it or bury it. We need a way not just to forget it. We need somewhere to place it. We need a final resting place for our displace, disgrace. We need someone who can take it away forever. But who would ever want to take our disgrace? Our text this morning has no answer. But our text is a flashing neon sign to the answer. Brothers and sisters, there is one who came, who entered the pain and shame, who entered into and took our disgrace. There is one who wasn't like Absalom, who didn't keep your pain on the hush. There is, there is one who didn't just get mad at what happened and do nothing like King David. There is one who would choose to make a public declaration of his love for you by fighting for your justice, your redemption, your peace to the death. Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters, bore our shame at the cross. And it's at the cross that Christ exchanges our brokenness for healing, our despair for hope, our shame for compassion, our guilt for forgiveness, our violence for peace and the ashes for beauty. It's where he exchanges disgrace for grace. Grace that listens, grace that heals, and grace that transforms. Christ entered the pain and shame of misery to deal with our disgrace, to take the ashes dumped on our heads and to take the penalty for the actions, the ashes we've dumped on others' heads. Understand, Christ died for the abused and the abuser, for the violated and the violator, so that by faith we can find redemption for all our shame and all of our guilt. And this is a guarantee because Christ not only died, he rose from the dead, proving by his resurrection that God heals, God redeems, and God will one day make all things new. Because of Christ's work on the cross, brothers and sisters, you have a place to exchange your disgrace for his glorious grace. Make the exchange. 